Well, sometimes, oftentimes, we need to be convinced about how bad things are for us. Because we're not convinced when we're told once. Um, and sometimes we're not even convinced when we're told this is bad for you. Sometimes we need to be shown how it's bad for you. And years ago, there was lots of commercials, I remember, about trying to convince us that smoking is bad for us. You know, Surgeon General has all their warnings and all that stuff. Like, smoking's bad for you, it'll kill you. Um, but I remember this commercial, I've tried to find it online, but I haven't been able to find it, of like, I just remember this person like sitting in a wheelchair and they're all kind of like dark and charred and like tar on them. And the message was, if you only knew uh, what smoking was doing on the inside. It was like, this is what, if you put it on the outside, this is what smoking is doing to you on the inside. It's like charring your lungs and putting tar in them. And then I also remember uh, lots of ads uh, about like, don't drink and drive, like this is a really bad thing for you. Uh, but today there's a different activity that we're always told not to do while driving. What's that? What's the activity we're told today? Texting, exactly. Texting, we've all heard the message because you know people were dying and texting while they're driving. So now they're, you know, it's getting ran in our heads. Do not do this. This is bad for you. And there's a, um, there's a billboard. It's around here. I don't exactly know where it is, but it's like, I think it's got like a black background. It's got this little square and it looks like the green bubble, like, uh, like conversation bubble um, for text messaging. It has a little red thing in the corner with these numbers on it that says, you know, here's unread messages, 500 messages. And the message is uh, better left unread than dead. And so it's like, you know, this is really bad for you. Do not do this. Do not text while you drive. Don't check them. Um, and there's been this, I've gotten like these ads uh, on like YouTube or whatever of these uh, internet ads that are kind of doing the same thing. They'll start off like these teens or, you know, young adults or whoever it is driving in their cars, talking, laughing, having fun. And then you kind of like get moved over into their perspective, um, like from their eyes. And then they like, oh, I have a message. And they look at it quick. And then when they look up, all of a sudden there's a car in front of them or something. And it's like, they crash and then it's like, okay, everyone in their car died and then these other people in this other car died. And it's like, okay, do not check your text messages because um, this is really dangerous. It's bad for you. And people, um, you're killing people um, while you're driving because you're running into them and also you're killing people in your car. And it's like, do not do this. And you think we'd only need to be told once, hey, this is really dangerous. You could die. Don't do it. You think that would be enough for us to know like, okay, I'm not going to do that thing. But we think, well, it's just one text. It'll only take a second. I'll just do it real quick. Other people crash, but that won't be me. I'm like more alert than other people or something like that. Um, but we need convincing, and that's what these ads and these commercials are aiming at. This is really bad for you. Don't do it. And today we're continuing this series in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And it's a book of beginnings. And we saw in the first several chapters the beginning of this is how God created everything, and this is how it's supposed to be, and this is how everything got not the way it's supposed to be. It's how everything went down the tubes, how everything got broken. And um, we're no longer at home with God. We're supposed to be welcome at home with Him, um, living in His presence. But that's no longer the case. And, but Genesis is all about how God's beginning a plan, putting a plan into motion to bring us back home. And that's why we've called this series Beginning the Journey Home. And that's why our decorations um, are like both of a garden and of a home because in the very beginning you probably have heard of the Garden of Eden that was like home that was where humanity was supposed to live with God in his presence and this is a reminder this is where God's bringing us you go to the last chapters in the Bible Revelation 21 22 it's a garden city and so God's bringing us back um, to the garden I want he wants to dwell with us he wants us uh, him to be our God and for us to be his people in chapters 2 through 4 which we just finished we're introduced with the title these are the generations of heaven and earth. In other words, this is the story of heaven and earth. This is how everything got the way it is now. 
And in chapter 5, we have a new title. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. That was the generations of heaven and earth. Now we're zeroing in um, on Adam and his family, not expanded to heavens and earth, but now we're zeroing in Adam and the, everyone who comes from him. In other words, this is the story of Adam's family. This is what becomes of Adam and his descendants, which is all of us. You know? I mean, a lot of them get wiped out later, as I'm sure a lot of you know. Um, but as I said last week, as we go through chapters 3 through 11, they're, they're very dark. And they show us the ugly reality of humanity. They show us the ugly reality of how bad sin is. And we need these chapters because we need to be convinced about how bad sin is. We need to be convinced that sin kills us and sin kills others. Maybe not physically, but it's bringing damage emotionally, physically, psychologically, spiritually to ourselves and to other people that we do it against. And it's like um, those commercials, it's like we need to be shown these things because we say to ourselves, oh, well, sin isn't that bad. I know God says not to do this, but I'm, I'm doing it and I'm not really seeing these bad consequences. Like, it's okay. Like, I'm the exception. And sinning, if you want a definition for it, um, is doing what God says is bad. That's what sinning is. Doing what God says is bad. And what God, not bad is like, you're a bad boy, but it's like, this is going to be bad for you. And sinning is going outside the limits, going out to do the thing God says. This is what's good, this is what's bad, and sinning is doing the things that God says are bad. And when God tells us what's bad, and we do it anyway, we're rejecting his authority over us. We're saying, like, I know you said that, uh, but, you know, I'm going to kind of do my own thing anyway. I'm just going to do it my way. And we're taking charge, but the reality is that humans are very bad at being in charge. We weren't made to be in charge for one reason, and God's supposed to be the one who's in charge. And we're to serve him as his ambassadors, representing his reign and rule on earth. We're supposed to be his representatives. He's in charge. That's how it works. You know, if somebody sent us an ambassador, they're not in charge, but they're sent on behalf of the one who is in charge. And so being made in his image, that's what we're supposed to be doing, representing his interests and his desires. We're not supposed to be in charge. We're supposed to be doing what he says. But we need to be convinced that sin is bad, and that it's bad for us to be in charge, just like those texting commercials um, convincing us, don't do this, this is bad for you. And the big question this passage answered is, what happens when humans take charge? What happens when humans take charge? And that's what we're going to be answering this evening. What happens when humans take charge? And we're going to start uh, in verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 5. And these two verses remind us, this is how things were supposed to be, kind of like flashback, like this is how things were. And so verse 1 says this in chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and named them man when they were created. And chapter 3 was horrible. Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and then they're sent out of his presence. Chapter 4 was even more horrible. Cain murdered his brother in cold blood, and then things only got worse with each generation of his family until we meet Lamech, different Lamech than in this chapter. There's some names that overlap in these two chapters, but you know, if you trace people's family trees today, you'd have a lot of people with the same name. You'd have people named Mitch, you'd have people named Curtis, and it's like, that doesn't mean the same person, you know, so different Lamech, but Lamech, he's killing people. He's like, if somebody hurts me, sevenfold vengeance on them. I'll, you know, I'll just kill them. Even if somebody just, you know, kicks me or something, like, I'm going to take vengeance and kill them. And so Cain's murdering his brother just escalates until he gets to Lamech, the final generation there. But these words at the beginning of chapter 5, chapter 3 is horrible, chapter 4 is horrible, these words at the beginning of chapter 5 take us back to the goodness of chapters 1 and 2. They take us back to this picture of humanity at home 
with God and everything as it's supposed to be. God created both male and female in his image, which, which means um, we are able to reflect what he is like, which means we're able to represent um, his kingdom and his rule and reign to people. And then verse 2 reminds us that God gave Adam and Eve his blessing. You know, if you ask some, someone for a uh, dad for daughter's hand in marriage, like, okay, I, I put my blessing on this. And God says, I put my blessing on you. I want you to go and multiply and be fruitful, fill the earth, and subdue it. Take care of this creation um, like I would take care of it. And so humanity is given God's blessing and commissioned to care for God's creation and cultivate its good potential. And humans were made to live with God. And we could, you know, home is where the heart is. Um, we saw in those passages, home is where our God is. That's where we're supposed to be in God's presence with him. Verse 3 then says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. And the image of God is passed down to Adam's children. But because it's passed through Adam, it's compromised just like Adam has been compromised. The image of God in humanity hasn't been obliterated, hasn't been wiped out, um, but it's been tainted and corrupted. It's like a piece of art that you look at and it's you know, all ripped and tattered and torn and banged up and dirty, um, and you can still see the image, but it isn't what it was. And so in each of us, we can still see uh, the image of God um, in everybody, and yet it's been tainted. It's not what it was. It's been manipulated and curved and, and twisted into something that it's not supposed to be. But after this return to reminding us like, of the goodness of chapters 1 and 2, Genesis starts showing us how bad humans are at being in charge. We're supposed to live in God's kingdom, but we want to set up our own kingdom. We want to be on the throne. We want to be king. We want to be in charge. And the big question this passage answers is, what happens when humans take charge? And this passage gives us five consequences. And the first consequence um, is this. Instead of life, there is death. When humans take charge, instead of life... There's death. And verses 4 and 5 introduce us to this formula. It says, The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. And you guys can finish it because you heard me read it. And he died. died. Yes. And he died over and over again. And he died. And he died. And he died. And then verses 8, we repeat the pattern. Um, when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. died. Yes, and so uh, instead of life, there's death. And there's ten uh, genealogy lists like this one in Genesis. But this is the only one that makes sure we know that these people died. You know, you could kind of assume that, like, well, hey, it didn't say they died, so I guess they're still around. It's like, no, you assume people died at some point. And this is the only one that makes a point of us knowing these people all died. They died, they died, they died. And through ten generations, nine of them end with, and he died. And the first verses remind us of God's good creation, where he breathed life into humanity and warned, if you guys uh, take charge, if you guys reject my authority, you're going to surely die. And then Adam and Eve disobey, and God sends them out of his life-giving presence so they can't eat from the tree of life. And the first death after this um, went on Cain's resume. You know, the first death is actually by the hands of another human, not by the hands of God. And so Cain murders his brother. But now here we see God's word come true with the repeated, and he died, and he died, and he died. And God made us for life with him, but life without him is death. And there's a consequence of taking charge. We now live with death. Separated from God, he's the source of life. Now, 
we experience death. And the second consequence of humans taking charge is, instead of blessing, there is curse. What happens when humans take charge? Instead of blessing, there is curse. God gave his blessing on Adam and Eve to fill the earth as his representatives and subdue it. But then Adam and Eve took charge, decided to disobey God, and then God cursed the ground. They would now experience frustration and difficulty living in God's creation and his world. And this ex was expressed by Lamech um, in the ninth generation uh, in this list. Verse 28 says, if you skip down to near the end of chapter 5, it says, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech longs for relief from the painful toil of working under the curse. Work was supposed to be this blessing that God gives. I'm going to commission you to work and keep this garden. And now Lamech's like, I just want to be done with this. And he hopes his son's going to be the one to, get, to make it happen. And Noah, um, it sounds like the Hebrew word for relief, for comfort. And that's what Lamech wants. He wants relief. I want comfort from this. And he's like, okay, Noah, he's going to be the one to do it. Um, and there's Ironically, he is the one to relieve Lamech and others, but in a different way than Lamech thought. Um, and humans were supposed to partner with God in working his good creation, but because we rejected his authority, now it's painful toil. It doesn't feel like a blessing anymore. The third consequence of humans taking charge is, instead of goodness, there's wickedness. What happens when humans take charge? Instead of goodness, there is wickedness. When God was creating Everything in Genesis 1, over the course of six days, at the end of each, we read, and God, there's two words we need to do, he saw everything, and he said that it was good. He saw, and it was good. Those are the two things that happens. But then take a look at chapter 6, verse 5. In verse 5, so we were in chapter 5, now we're moving to chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart only evil continually. Now God looks out. He doesn't see good. Now he sees wickedness. And what does God see that's so bad? We need to back up to verses 1 and 2 um, to get the answer. So back to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, they say this. When man began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And so, multiply is what God told humanity to do. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Exact same word. As his representatives, God wanted humanity to fill the earth with his goodness. If God is good and he created everything good, and now he's sending out his representatives, they're supposed to be good too, showing God's goodness um, to everything else. But as they multiply, it tells us the sons of God saw the daughters of men and took them as their wives. And it's not clear, I wish I could just say, here's who the sons of God are, but it's not super clear who these sons of God are. And there are three main options. One um, is that they're godly men, you know, like father, like son, they're sons of God. And so they're uh, godly men from the family of Seth. We learned last week that that was um, a godly line coming from Adam. Cain was not good. Uh, but then he has another son, and they start calling upon the name of the Lord, Seth and his family. And so these are godly people from the family of Seth who are now intermarrying with ungodly women from the family of Cain. And so, in other words, it's people who follow God are marrying people who don't follow God. Like, so that could be, that's one option that people throw out there. A second option is that the sons of God are these ancient kings 
who are taking multiple wives like into their harem, into their palace to be like, okay, you five, you're my wives now. And they're just going around and collecting anybody they see as attractive. That's another option. The third is that these are angels who have left their assigned post. God gave, this is what you're supposed to be doing. You're my messenger. Um, and you're supposed to be doing this. They've left their assigned post to take humans as their wives, which they're not, they're not supposed to do. And none of these options is a knockout answer. It's kind of like one of those things where God has seen fit not to make this super clear to us. Um, and But angels, that's the most likely one that seems to be the most plain like way to read it. It's like, okay, there's a comparison between sons of God and the daughters of men. Why do you have to say they're daughters of men? That would imply the sons of God are not men. And the other places in Scripture, sons of God, like Job 1, is used to talk about angels. They're meeting in God's heavenly court and whatnot. Um, but while the identity of the sons of God is not clear, their violation is. Because when God is creating everything in Genesis 1, at the end of each day, remember we read, and God saw all that he made and it was good. And God told Adam and Eve, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is off limits. You don't define good and evil for yourselves. You don't know what good and evil is. I know what it is. I define it. And then, uh, but when the serpent tempted them, we're told that Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was good and then she took it and ate it. Now here we're told that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were good. Same word, attractive. It's um, inter uh, translated here. And then they took as their wives um, the ones that they chose. And so it's the same sin pattern being repeated. It's something that God has said is off limits. And then humans seeing it and saying, like, that looks good. I'm going to take it, um, even though God has said it's off limits. And he said it's not good for me. Because God is the one who declares what is good and what is not good. And Eve saw and took this thing that was off limits to her, and she ate it. And then the sons of God declare something to be good, and they take something that's off limits to them. And what's happening here is a, a defilement of marriage, because God created marriage as the union of one man with one woman. God made woman to be man's helper, but now even that holy and special union is corrupted as they join themselves to the sons of God instead of to men. And the sons of God, whoever they are, are taking what's off limits to them. And, and in so doing, they're perverting um, the marriage bed in pursuit of their own sexual appetites. Like, we're just going to take these people in marriage, even though we're not supposed to. And so they're corrupting um, marriage. And God has given us limits for our good. He said, here's the things that are good. Don't go out there because that's the stuff that's bad. And whatever is outside um, God's limits is something... Uh, that's bad for us. And God is the one who draws those lines. And when we see things that are outside those limits and declare it good and desire it and take it, that's what sin is. Sin is doing what God says is bad. And because of this, because they do this, God says, I'm going to limit man's life to 120 years. God breathed life into humanity, but now he's going to withdraw his breath of life at 120 years. And um, there's some exceptions to this, even in the book of Genesis, and it seems like it takes a while before God like implements this. Um, just like it took, I mean, God is patient. He's slow to anger, as we saw saying in that first song. And it takes a while for God um, to implement the flood, as we'll talk about later. And it takes a while, because God said, you're going to surely die if you do this. And then generations pass, and God isn't doing the thing he said he would do, because he's slow to anger and patient. Um, but in comparison with the long lifespans we read in chapter 5, 120 years, um, and what we experience now, um, you know, we have even shorter lifespans now, and we think like, you know, we've hit all these medical, you know, advancements, and now we can live super long, and it's like you read the Bible, and you're like, oh, huh. 
people lived a little longer, and we can look at the chapters of the long lives in Genesis 5 and be like, well, nobody lives that long these days, so that can't be true. And it's like, well, you know, we don't live in those days anymore. We live now after God has limited the lifespan of our years. So that's the third consequence. The fourth consequence of when, when humans take charge is instead of serving God, we serve sin. What happens when humans take charge? Instead of serving God, we serve sin. This also comes from verse 5 in chapter 6. So I'll reread that. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the phrase he uses, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that is not what you want your boss to write on your yearly performance review. Oh, you know, hey, uh, Mitch, every intention of his thoughts or of his heart were only evil continually. So, okay, so you know, try to improve that this year. That's not what you want hear anybody say. You don't want to hear God to say that. And the word for intention, it's a pottery word. Like a potter forms a pot, man's heart forms evil. All that it produces, all of its actions are evil. We're in, enslaved to sin and we can't be free of it. And it's just like God told Cain in Genesis 4, if you do not do good, sin is crouching at your door, its desire is for you. And this shows sin, like a wild animal, has just devoured humanity and now just has them, us, them, us, completely under its control. That's the fourth consequence. The fifth and final consequence when humans take charge is instead of pleased, God is grieved. What happens when humans take charge? Instead of pleased, God is grieved. And after God looks out on his creation and sees only the wickedness of man, verse 6 says this, in chapter, verse 6 in chapter 6 says this, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And often the Bible will use human emotions to describe God's reactions. And, and there's two um, ways to think about God. He's the transcendent, all-powerful creator of everything. So he runs everything. He's the king. Um, the other side, he's also the Lord who is close and personal. God isn't distant. He's both transcendent, all-powerful, but he's also close. And these verses give us a picture of the God who's near and personal. And when God looked at his creation creation in Genesis 1, he was pleased. He declared that it was very good. And that no longer is the case. And even people who haven't read their Bible um, at all um, know that God sends a big flood and saves the animals um, by using a guy named Noah who builds a big boat. Like, Would you agree like most people in the United States probably have heard of that story or at least you know, in whispers or maybe even seen a movie about it, the one that came out recently? Um, and that story is coming um, in the next uh, passage, we're going to see Noah get prepared for this task. I mean, this passage is kind of like a little movie trailer, a little teaser for what's coming. Like, look, this is the condition um, that the world is in, and that's what leads God to do what he's about to do next. And God warned humanity, if you choose to take charge and disregard me as your king, you're going to surely die. And the fact that generations upon generations and thousands of years pass before God brings about the flood is a testimony to the depth of his patience. And as we are saying, God is slow to anger. He's rich in love. And you know, God is, I mean, it's just, just amazing how patient God is with us, as we see in this, these verses. But um, he is true to his word. 
And when we think of the flood, we often picture um, an angry God flying off the handle. Like he's had enough, and he's just kind of been dealing with it, and now he just explodes with rage. Fine, I'm just going to wipe all of you out. Um, but the picture here is of a grieving God who keeps his word. Yes, God administers the consequences, but humanity chose them. He told them what would happen if they took charge, but they did it anyway. Like We could live in this good creation um, in my presence, um, or you can choose to go another way and reject my authority. And they chose the other way, and he, they told them the consequences. And the word for grieved here is used in the Old Testament uh, describe, to describe a deep, intense emotion. Eleven brothers, you know, here's three instances in the Old Testament where uh, it's used. Eleven brothers feel this way when they hear that their sister has been raped. And a son feels this way when he hears that his father plans to murder his best friend. And a, a father feels this way when he hears that his son has been killed. So think about how you'd feel in those situations. You hear your sister's been raped. You hear that your father is going to kill your best friend. You hear that your son died. And inside of us, there's this mixture of you know, anguish and, and anger. Like, how could this be? You know, like this deep sorrow, but also like you know, somebody needs to pay. This needs to be set right. There's this anguish and this anger that rises up in us. And that anguish and anger is what God feels as he looks out at and sees the wickedness of humanity. Because we're supposed to be his representatives. We're supposed to work with him as his image bears, we're supposed to know his love and love others in the same way that he loves us. But when God looks, he sees none of that. He sees generation after generation rebelling against him, calling good what he's called evil, hurting and killing each other and corrupting everything that he has made. How you'd feel if your sister was defiled by another man is how God feels about his image bears, defiling themselves and everything that he has made. God is grieved because he's grieved because those whom he created to be his representatives have now become his enemies, fighting against his purposes. And so now he must fight against them instead of working joyfully with them. And at this, he feels both anger and anguish. He's grieved and he feels this regret about it. And all of this is meant to convince us that we have a problem. It's meant to convince us that sin is really bad. And when we do what God says is bad, it doesn't bring us anything good. I mean, Adam and Eve, uh, they got convinced, like, you know what? I'm going our own way. That's going to lead to better results in our life. And then this chapter after chapter were shown, that didn't lead anywhere good. Doing what God said is bad didn't lead anywhere good. And these are meant to convince us that we're really bad at being in charge. That when we crown ourselves king of our lives instead of God, it brings death and curse and wickedness, enslavement to sin and grief to God. And we need to be convinced of the problems so that we will look for the solution. Passages like this are intended to make us hunger and thirst for the solution. You know, we should, it's meant to parch our mouths like, you know, please God, what could do something about this, please? And we're just longing for a solution. And these passages do that by holding up a mirror to show us what we've become and what we're doing to ourselves, what we're doing to other people. We need to look in the mirror of Scripture to see how bad sin is and how bad we are being in charge. And that's what passages like this are doing. And, um, two people in this passage give us hope. In the seventh generation of chapter 5, Enoch breaks the pattern of death. I told you as we read it, listen for who breaks the pattern. Well, Enoch breaks that pattern. We aren't told about how anyone else lives. You know, it's just they had kids and then they died. Uh, but in chapter 5, verse 21, 
we're told, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. In a world of death, Enoch escapes it. It says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. After a life of relationship with God, you know, think about the picture of walking with God. It's a common image in the Bible. Like, you're walking side by side with somebody else. You know, people, if you go on a vacation or you go get home from work, like, go for a walk with your spouse or go for a walk with your friend or go for a walk with your kid. It's like, it's a picture of this relationship. We're walking side by side through life, conversing and talking with another. That's the picture we're given. Enoch walked with God. He's going through life with God. And that's the, the picture he gives us. And Enoch does this after a life relationship with him. God takes Enoch to be in his presence. Then in chapter 6, God looks out and he's grieved by the wickedness he sees and he determines to blot out humanity. And then in verse 8 of chapter 6 we read, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God sees Noah and he's pleased. He's kind of this one little bright, shining light in the midst of, he looks up at everything and sees wickedness, but in the eyes of the Lord, uh, he's pleased with Noah. Um, and next week we're going to learn that Noah is described in the same way as Enoch. Noah walked with God. And Enoch and Noah know they're not in charge. God is in charge, and they trust him, and they're walking with him and doing what he says and taking his guidance. And so here's a, a truth to know um, that you can take home with you, that Jesus is the solution to our problem. And all this is meant to show us sin is really bad. We have a really big problem, um, but Jesus is the solution to our problem. You know, sin may be bad, uh, but we have a bigger Savior um, than sin, and he can overcome all of that. And this passage is meant to make us hunger and thirst for a Savior. Someone, please save us from this condition we've gotten ourselves into, and that Savior is Jesus. Because Jesus, if you think about what he did, he defeated death. You can think of there's passages for all these things we went over today. Um, when we said, you know, instead of life, there's death. Instead of blessing, there's curse. Jesus takes all those negatives. There's passages in the New Testament talking about Jesus taking all those on. Jesus defeated death. Jesus defeated the curse. Jesus defeated sin. Jesus defeated evil and wickedness. And Jesus opened up a way for us to be part of God's kingdom once again. And when we look at the death of Jesus on the cross, we see both how bad sin is and how good God is. Both of them are there. The, the seriousness of sin and the goodness of God are on full display. And we made a mess. And Jesus on the cross is like uh, this giant sponge absorbing the death and the curse and the sin and the evil that we've spilled on ourselves and all over our world. And when we surrender our lives to him, he absorbs it all. He like, sucks all that out of our life and he takes it upon himself. And we couldn't do it. We couldn't. I can't soak up somebody else's, you know, sin and all the things wrong in their life because, you know, sponge that's full and saturated can't saturate or suck up things from other places. I could a full sponge can't suck up water off the counter. And same way, my life is full of all the things that everyone else's life is full of. And so I couldn't take it. It required somebody who came and would live a perfect life. And so Jesus' sponge, you know, if his sponge is soaking up badness. At the end of his life, when he's on the cross. It's totally dry. And on the cross, he's absorbing everything um, that we have brought into the world. And he's um, absorbing all the poison we brought into it because he lived this perfect life. And so anyone who trusts in him, he soaks up 
all that poison from our lives so we can live free of it, so we can have life once again. John 17 says, Now this is eternal life, that we would know God, Jesus Christ, whom we send, so we can be reconnected to the life God originally had for us. But as long as we believe that sin isn't that bad, we won't hunger and thirst for Jesus. And many of us are in denial. Even those, those of us who've been following Jesus for years, we're in denial about how bad sin is. We're in denial about how bad it is that we don't, for us that we don't pray or read our Bible. We're in denial about how bad it is that we're always harsh with our spouse, or with our kids, or with people at work. We're in denial about how bad it is when we gossip or complain about other people behind their backs. We're in denial about how bad it is that we'd rather watch TV or play on our phones than love our families or our neighbors or our friends or people around us. And we deny how bad it is that we hear God's word and we walk away unchanged. You know, James talks about be doers of the word, not only hearers. And we are in denial about how bad it is that we can hear God's commands and walk out and obey none of them. Um, on a given Sunday or any other time we open God's Word. And this passage is here to tell us it's really bad when we do that. It's really bad for us. It doesn't bring anything good into our lives when we don't listen to God. It's killing us and it's killing others. We're bringing death, emotional, psychological, spiritual, physical, into other people's lives. And we need Jesus. And other people need you to be following Him and sh and so that you can have His life um, flowing through and His character flowing through you instead of all this other junk we just talked about. And we need to admit there's a problem, right? There's lots of programs that say, like, that's step one. Like, let's admit that there's a problem. And it's only when we do that that we'll seek the solution. It's only when we do that that we'll desire what God offers us in Jesus. Awareness of our sin isn't to beat us down. Like, we're not supposed to walk out of here and be like, wow, I feel really crummy, like, listening to that passage. But it's not meant to beat us down. It's meant to give us this hunger and this thirst for the solution, for the Savior, for Jesus, the only one who can make all of it right. And sin does, doesn't bring good into our lives. It only brings us bad. And it's, we're supposed to say, like, yeah, I don't want the bad. I want to follow God. I want Jesus to come into my life and change me. So something you can think about um, as you leave here today, um, just think about what, is, what does God do when he sees sin? And maybe think about, well, what do you do when you see sin in your life and other people's lives? And this passage tells us God grieves <coughs> when he sees sin. And so if you stop grieving over your sin, you're not in a good place. That's, you're in a dangerous place. If you have a self-righteous and judgmental attitude when you see the sin in other people's lives, then you're also not in a good place. God grieves when he sees sin. And sin is killing us and it's killing others. And that should make sad and we should want more for people we shouldn't be like well good thing I'm not like them I'm better than them we should be like I am so sad and grieved at the damage that you know somebody's causing their life because of the sin and Genesis has been challenging to me because we see these three last three chapters we saw God how Adam and Eve blamed when they were confronted about their sin and we saw how Cain showed no remorse and he took no responsibility when confronted with those sin, his sin I see those same patterns in me. Too often, I defend myself and justify my actions and blame other people or circumstances on the reason um, that I'm sinning. Oh, I was harsh with you because of this. Oh, I was impatient with you because of this. Like, oh, I didn't do this because of whatever it is. And I can blame other people instead of taking ownership. And recently, God has shown me that I've not been feeling a lot of remorse 
or grieving over my sin. And I might say, I'm sorry with the right words, but not feeling sorrow in my heart. And so for me, I'm really, it's been a wake-up call going through these, like, wow, I need to, like, make sure I'm taking it seriously and giving it to God and turning to Him and asking for forgiveness um, and really caring, like, oh, I, you know, shouldn't we care when we hurt other people? We shouldn't be like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, like, will you forgive me? And just move on, you know, 10 minutes later and do it again, like, oh, I'm sorry, would you please forgive me? Um, when we hurt other people, we should feel sad about that. And if we stop feeling sad about that, that's not a good thing for us. So I'm returning to a goal I set at the beginning of the year, which was um, every day I want to bring my sin to God and say, this is what I deserve for it. Here's what I, I recognize. This is how I lived yesterday. This is how I lived today. Here's what I deserve for that. I could deserve all these things we just read about today. Um, and then thank him um, for Jesus who takes it away. Because we're not supposed to be like, God, I'm just a horrible person. God, I'm just a horrible person. God, I'm just a horrible person. Um, no, the Bible calls people who are still sinning um, saints, God's holy people, because we've been um, adopted by God and justified and righteous in his sight. Um, but we need to have ways that we're recognizing, like, I'm sad about this sin in my life. And so I'd encourage you to think of a similar habit, because we need to grieve with God over the effects of sin in our lives. And on the other side... When it comes to sin in other people's lives, we can have this wrong attitude of, well, we could be like, okay, I just need to fix all the behaviors. You're not following the rules, and I'm going to get you in line. Um, that's one way to think about it, which is the wrong attitude. We could also think, well, I'm better than them. I'm like, wow, look at all the bad things I do, and like, huh, good thing I'm, I'm, I'm better than them. That's the wrong attitude. And the other is, oh, it's okay, God loves you anyway. All those are the wrong response to sin in other people's lives. Our attitude toward people should be, I'm grieved at what these actions are doing to you and doing to those around you. And I love you and want more for you. Well, that's, a, that's what God does in our lives. He doesn't just come to say, like, you know, it's okay that you're, you know, you're sinning and not really following me. Like, I love you anyway. Um, God does love us, but it's definitely not okay that we're rejecting his authority and not doing what he says. And you can just look at the cross to show you how not okay it is. Jesus went to the cross and died for that. And so we always want to come back to Jesus. And what, what difference, you know, what a difference it would make. You know, how much would change in your life, um, in our life as a church, if we started reacting to our sin in the way God reacts to it, and if we started reacting to other people's sin the way God reacts to it. That would be, like, you could spend a whole lifetime learning to do that. Um, and it would just change your life um, dramatically for the better. You wouldn't be like this down-in-the-dumps person. I think you'd have way more joy because you'd be like, yeah, I have a huge problem, but I have an awesome Savior who's taking care of it. And like, oh, you guys have a huge problem too, but guess what? There's a Savior. Like, we get to tell ourselves good news and tell other people good news. So as we close, just thinking as we go forward in Genesis. Throughout Genesis 3 through 11, we see sin started this seed and then it grows like a weed and it takes over the entire world, all of humanity. And then God does what he warned he would do. He administers justice. Like, that's what he should do. We want a God who's just and fair and gives people um, what they deserve. It gives them the consequences. But people, because people who commit treason against the king of the universe, they, there's consequences to that. You can't commit treason against the king. We also see God's grace on full display as we go. Because God administers justice by giving people what they deserve, but he also gives grace, which is giving people what they don't deserve. And this ugly picture 
that Genesis shows us is meant to hold up a mirror on how bad sin is and create in us a hunger and thirst for Jesus and the salvation he offers from it. And so we've got these chapters. We're in chapter 6 now. In chapter 11, chapter 12, we finally get, we introduced to Abraham, where um, God's calling him to bring blessing back. And let's pray. Father, this is a, these passages about the horribleness of sin and what it does to us can uh, feel heavy. Would you let us feel the heaviness, but then would you also let us turn to Jesus, who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for I'll give you rest. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so when we feel the heaviness of sin, would you let us turn to Jesus to give it to him, um, and to rely on him for the power to live a new life um, free from it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.